So what do you think? Is a follower of Jesus Christ supposed to use his mind or just listen to his heart? Many in today's churches say it doesn't matter whether you think, you're just supposed to feel. That you don't have to be intellectual, but you do have to be spiritual. Today, you'll hear Dr. William Lane Craig argue that such thinking puts a person in intellectual neutral and can bring great harm to the cause of Christ. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is a scholar, author, and speaker who addresses spiritual and cultural issues of concern to all of us. Dr. Craig joined Pat at the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and today we'll bring you part one of his fascinating presentation on being an intellectual neutral. So get ready to put your thinking cap on. And by the way, the entire conference featuring Dr. William Lane Craig is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Along with the conference, you'll find articles, books, interviews, past radio shows, and resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And now, here's Dr. William Lane Craig with part one of An Intellectual Neutral. Pat wanted me to talk a little bit about why it is important for each one of us as a Christian to be intellectually engaged with our faith and able to explain to people what and why we believe what we do as Christians. Several years ago, a couple of books appeared which sent shockwaves through the American educational community. The first of these was entitled Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know by E.D. Hirsch. And this book documented the fact that large numbers of American college students today do not have the basic background knowledge to understand the front page of a newspaper. For example, a quarter of the students in a recent survey thought that Franklin D. Roosevelt was president during the Vietnam War. Two-thirds of the students did not know when the American Civil War occurred. One-third thought that Columbus discovered the New World sometime after 1750. In a recent survey at Cal State Fullerton, over half of the students could not identify Chaucer or Dante. 90% did not know who Alexander Hamilton was, even though his picture is on every $10 bill. These statistics would be funny if they weren't so alarming. What has happened to our schools that they should be producing such ignorant people? Well, enter Alan Bloom, who was an eminent educator at the University of Chicago and the author of the second book that I referred to a moment ago, The Closing of the American Mind. Bloom argues in this book that behind the current educational malaise in the United States lies the universal conviction of students that there is no absolute truth, and therefore truth is not worth pursuing. In their view, all truth is relative. True for you, maybe, but not true for me. Bloom writes, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. 
that anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident astonishes them as though we were calling into question two plus two equals four. These are things you don't think about. The danger they have been taught to fear is not error, but intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness. And this is the virtue, the only virtue, which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating. Openness and the relativism that makes it plausible is the great insight of our times. The study of history and of culture teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right, and that led to wars, persecutions, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think you are right at all. Since there is no absolute truth, since all truth is relative, the purpose of an education is not to learn truth or to master the facts. Rather, it is simply to acquire a skill so that you can go out and acquire wealth, power, and fame. Truth has become irrelevant. Now, this sort of relativistic attitude toward truth is completely contrary to the Christian worldview. For as Christians, we believe that all truth is God's truth, that God has revealed to us the truth, both in his word and in him who said, I am the truth. And therefore, the Christian can never look upon the truth with apathy or disdain. Rather, we cherish and treasure the truth as a reflection of God himself. Nor does a commitment to truth make you intolerant, as Bloom's students seem to think. The traditional understanding of tolerance is that while I may disagree with what you say, I will defend to the death your right to say it. The problem is that this traditional understanding of tolerance has now been changed. Today, tolerance means I dare not disagree with what you say, lest I be branded intolerant and bigoted for having dared to do so. But when you think about it, this new understanding of tolerance is logically incoherent. Just think about it for a moment. If you tolerate a view, then that entails, the very concept of tolerance entails, that you do not believe the view that you tolerate. Right? Otherwise you wouldn't tolerate it, you would believe in it. So the very concept of tolerance implies that you think that the tolerated view is false. So the very concept of tolerance implies a commitment to truth. As Christians, we are committed to both truth and tolerance. For we believe in him who said not only I am the truth, but also love your enemies. The correct basis for tolerance is not relativism, but love. Now, 
at the time that these two books were released, I was teaching in the religious studies department of a Christian college. And I began to wonder, how much have Christian students been infected by the attitudes that Bloom described? How would my own students fare on one of E.D. Hirsch's cultural literacy tests? Well, how would they, I thought. Why not give them a quiz? And so I did. I drew up a general knowledge quiz about famous people, places, and events, and administered it to two classes of about 50 sophomores. And what I found was that although they did better than the general student population, nevertheless, there were sizable portions of the group that could not identify, even with a phrase, various famous individuals and events. For example, 49% of my students could not identify Leo Tolstoy, the author of perhaps the world's greatest novel, War and Peace. To my surprise, 16% of the students could not identify Winston Churchill. One student said that he was one of the founding fathers of America. Another one identified him as a great revival preacher from a few hundred years ago. 22% could not identify Afghanistan. 20% did not know where the Amazon River is. Imagine. And I wasn't really surprised that a whopping 67% could not identify the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, several of them identified it as a dieter's problem. So it became clear to me that Christian students have not been able to rise above the dark undertow in our educational system at the primary and secondary levels. But then an even more terrible fear began to dawn upon me as I contemplated these statistics. If Christian students are this ignorant of the general facts of history and geography, then the chances are that they and Christians in general are equally ignorant or even more ignorant of the facts of our own Christian heritage and doctrine. Our culture in general has sunk to a level of biblical and theological illiteracy. A great many, if not most people, cannot even name the four gospels. In one recent survey, one person identified them as Matthew, Mark, and Luther. In another survey, Joan of Arc was identified by various people as Noah's wife. And I suspected that the Christian church is probably caught somewhere a little higher up in this same downward spiral. Charles Malick, in his inaugural address at the dedication of the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton, Illinois, emphasized that as Christians, we face two tasks in our evangelism, winning the soul and winning the mind. That is to say, not only converting people spiritually, but converting them intellectually as well. And the church, he warned, is lagging dangerously behind with respect to that second task. Mark his words well. Malik said, I must be frank with you. The greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. 
The mind in its greatest and deepest reaches is not cared for enough. The result is that the arena of creative thinking is vacated and abdicated to the enemy. For the sake of greater effectiveness in witnessing to Jesus Christ himself, as well as for their own sakes, evangelicals cannot afford to keep on living on the periphery of responsible intellectual existence. Our churches are filled with people whose minds are idling in intellectual neutral. They may be spiritually born again, yes, but they still think like non-Christians. As Christians, their minds are going to waste. Now, sometimes people will say to me that they actually prefer having a simple faith. But here I think it's critical that we distinguish between a childlike faith and a childish faith. A childlike faith is a whole-souled trust in God as our loving Heavenly Father. And Jesus commends such a childlike faith to us. But a childish faith is an immature, unreflective faith. And such a faith is not commended to us. On the contrary, Paul says, do not be children in your thinking. In evil, be like infants, but in thinking, be mature. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. If a simple faith means an unreflective, ignorant faith, then we should want none of it. Christian faith is not an apathetic faith, a brain-dead faith. Rather, Christian faith is a living, inquiring faith. As St. Anselm once put it, ours is a faith that seeks understanding. So tonight, I want to challenge all of us to become intellectually engaged with our faith as Christians. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean very simply learning what we as Christians believe and being able to explain to someone why we believe it. Learning what we believe and explaining why we believe it. This is a momentous decision. It is a step which I believe millions of American Christians need to take. So why should you take this step? Well, let me give you three reasons tonight. Number one, shaping culture, shaping culture. We've all heard of the so-called culture war, which is going on in American society today. Now, some people may not like this sort of militaristic metaphor, but the fact is that a tremendous struggle for the soul of America is going on right now. And this struggle is not just political. There is a religious or spiritual dimension to this struggle as well. Secularists are bent on eliminating religion from the public square in American society. And the recent move by the state legislature here in Hawaii to eliminate prayer from the beginning of its sessions is simply one small symptom of this secularism. The so-called new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, or Christopher Hitchens want to go even further. 
They want nothing less than to exterminate entirely religion from American society. American culture has already become post-Christian. Belief in a sort of generic God is still the norm, but belief in Jesus Christ is now politically incorrect. Just ask yourself, how many movies coming out of Hollywood have you seen that portray Christians in a favorable light? How many times instead do we see Christians portrayed as shallow, bigoted, villainous, hypocrites? What's the public perception of Bible-believing Christians in American culture today? Well, I want you to take a look at this cartoon. I hope this cartoon makes you angry as you look at it. It depicts so well the perception of Christians, not just Baptists, but any Bible-believing Christian in American society today. Goofy-looking doofuses to be gawked at by ordinary people. But notice, they're also dangerous. The sign says, caution. They mustn't be allowed positions of influence in society. Maybe that's why they even need to be penned up. So why should we care about what our culture thinks of us as Christians? Why can't we be just faithful followers of Christ in a dark and dying culture? Why not just preach the gospel to a dying world? Well, the answer is because the gospel is never heard in isolation. It is always heard against the backdrop of the culture in which a person was born and raised. A person who has been raised in a culture which is sympathetic to the Christian world and life view will be open to the gospel in a way that a person who is raised in a secular culture will not. For a thoroughly secularized person, you may as well tell him to believe in the tooth fairy or in Santa Claus as in Jesus Christ. It will appear that absurd to him. And what awaits us in the United States if our slide into secularism continues is already evident in Europe. Evangelism is immeasurably more difficult in Europe than in the United States. Jan and I lived for 13 years in three different countries in Europe where I spoke evangelistically on European university campuses across the continent. And I can personally testify to how hard the ground is. It's difficult for the gospel even to get a hearing because the general cultural perception is that Christianity is absurd. It's a fairy tale. It's been tried and found wanting. And the United States is following down this same road a little further back with Canada somewhere in between. If the gospel is to be heard as a viable option for thinking men and women today, then it is vital that we as Christians try to shape American culture in such a way that Christian belief is still an intellectually reasonable thing to embrace. And it can be done. We are living at a time in history in which philosophy is undergoing a veritable Christian renaissance at a time when science is more open 
to the existence of a creator and designer of the universe than at any time in recent memory. And at a time when biblical scholars have embarked upon a renewed quest of the historical Jesus and have confirmed historically the outline of the portrait of Jesus that is painted in the Gospels. If Christian laymen could only be trained to give good answers to the questions that people ask and solid reasons for why they believe as they do, then the perception of Christians in our culture would slowly begin to change. Christians would come to be seen as thoughtful people who deserve to be taken seriously rather than as emotional fanatics. Becoming a Christian would be a reasonable and attractive option for people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that people will become Christians because of the arguments and the evidence. Rather, what I'm saying is that the arguments and the evidence can help to shape a cultural environment in which Christian belief is still a reasonable thing to embrace. They create an environment in which people will be open to the gospel when they do hear it. So being intellectually engaged as Christians is a vital way of being salt and light in American society today. Number two, strengthening believers. Strengthening believers. The personal benefits of being intellectually engaged with your faith are huge. Let me just mention three ways in which it will strengthen you as a Christian. First of all, knowing what you believe and why you believe as you do will make you more confident in sharing your faith with others. I see this happen all the time on university campuses where we hold a debate. Typically, I'll come onto a campus and have a debate with a non-Christian professor on a subject like, does God exist? Or did Jesus rise from the dead? Or humanism versus Christianity? And you know what? I find that while most of these fellows are pretty good at beating up on an 18-year-old in one of their classes, they can't even go toe-to-toe -to -toe when it comes to dealing with one of their peers. They are almost clueless when it comes to the evidence for Christianity. The Christian position in these debates usually comes out so far ahead that the non-believers on campus will often accuse us of staging the whole event as a, a sort of setup to make the non-Christian position look bad. In fact, we try to get the best atheistic opponents we can, and they're often selected by the atheist club or the free thought group on the campus. Christian students, by contrast, come away from these debates with their heads held high, proud to be Christians. One Canadian student remarked to me after the debate, I can't wait to share my faith in Christ. Christians who lack training in defending their faith are often afraid to speak out and share their faith in Christ because they're afraid that someone's going to ask them a question that they don't know how to answer. And as a result, they hide their light under a bushel. But if you know the answers to the tough questions, then you're not afraid to go into the lion's den 
On the contrary, you'll enjoy it. It's fun talking with these unbelievers about Christianity and about their objections to it. Being intellectually equipped will help, I believe, to make you a bold and fearless witness for Jesus Christ. Secondly, having good reasons for what you believe can also help you in times of doubt and struggle. The personal benefits of becoming intellectually engaged as a Christian are just enormous. You'll become a bolder and more effective witness for Christ. You and your children will be able to persevere more easily in times of doubt and struggle, and you'll become a deeper and more interesting person. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but we'll pick it up right there next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran as Dr. William Lane Craig continues speaking on being an intellectual neutral on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Dr. Craig joined Pat Zucharin as part of the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and it's all available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. This exciting conference also featured topics like science and religion, the existence of God, can we be good without God, the new atheist and their case against God, and the problem of God and evil. Download this conference and you'll take your study of these crucial topics to the next level. Go right now to evidenceandanswers.org. And we also ask that you support us financially. Your stewardship and giving helps keep Evidence and Answers on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world. Today, more than ever, people need biblical answers to their questions about God and His love for us and the evidence to support those answers. So please let us hear from you today. Just click the Donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And we'll see you next time.